We're in the middle of uh, Ephesians chapter 4, and it is a passage that speaks to the idea of the church. In particular, we started something last week, and I wasn't able to finish, and so today we'll be primarily looking at what essentially is the third point in our message about growing the church, right? And uh, I will walk through these in a second, but um, I must have deleted the slide that has all three all lit up, but... Um, We'll walk through those in a second, but I just want to remind you of the context of Ephesians and where we are. If you were to take Ephesians and you were trying to break it up into kind of bite-sized components, I think the first thing you would do is divide up chapters 1 through 3 and 4 through 6. Because you'll notice a a singular theme, and that's that 1 through 3 is very instructional, very doctrinal very teaching and theologically centric, right? It speaks of all the things that God has done in his plan of redemption. And then when we get to chapters four through six, uh, it speaks of some of the practical outworking of all the things that we have in Christ. In other words, you you, you have the doctrine and then you have the duties or you might think of it as you have, you know, uh, the teachings, and then you have its applications, right? One through three, four through six. So now thinking about that, where we have come in chapters one to three, again, broad strokes, chapter one just regaled the glory of God revealed in his grace that is to bring God glory. His grace and his redeeming program will bring him glory for all of eternity. Everything that he's planned before the foundation of all of creation He knew that there would be human beings, that they would rebel against him, but that he would rescue some. And he would do that by his grace and by his grace alone. All of that, right, this amazing hymn of the great, gracious glory of God our Father in Jesus Christ through the enablement of the Holy Spirit. All of that, chapter 1. Chapter 2 speaks to why we needed his grace to be so glorious and powerful, because we were sinners, Dead in our trespasses, and without hope and without God's grace, impossible to save. And there's a constant reminder that it is by grace, it is by His grace, for two reasons. One, because if it is by your works in any way, the glory of God is robbed and it is yours. And what is your work cannot be His grace. These are antithetical to each other. Right? But the other reason is because, again, because you're robbing him of his glory. The intent of God and his redemptive program is to demonstrate how good and gracious he is for all time. Sometimes when we're thinking about like, you know, the, the new heavens and the new earth and all of future eternity, we might think, oh, so do we just kind of get a reboot? Like where we don't even know everything that has happened. I don't think so. I think we'll remember almost everything that has happened in our lives. I think we'll regale, right, all the stories of the scriptures. We'll remember how the earth and all of its plans, how how God's plans were fulfilled in terms of the history of an entire world from beginning its creation until its end, until now, the new heavens and the new earth. Why? Because that's how God's name will be glorified in all eternity. Not just that he's bigger than us. Not just that he's more powerful than us. But what does he use his power, his bigness, his greatness for? To rescue sinners. So see, so that's chapter one, chapter two. Chapter three 
then speaks very specifically about how in all of this, God has used the death of Christ, his resurrection, not to just save individuals, but to save them into a community, into one new humanity. Literally, it says one new man. So that we are no longer individuals. Uh, I, I'm a follower of Christ. Are you a follower? Okay, yeah, you know, we do our own thing. And then hopefully we might join a church. No, it is meant to be all of us individually rescued from our own sins. And yet all of us with the same testimony of God's grace and glory combined together into the body of Christ. This is an element that many, particularly Western churches, right? And particularly American um, cultures find difficult to fully embrace because we're so individualistic, you know? Um, I want to do this. I like these things. You don't like these things? Well, that's cool. You do your thing. I do my thing, right? And I'm not saying that that's sinful. Not at all. But the point is that when Scripture here in Ephesians talks about this one new man, this one new body, it's always singular. It's not one new bodies. It's not one new man's. Or, I, sorry, men. Right? I guess you would say men, right? Oh, messed up the plural. Right? It's not, it's not a, a plural pluralistic, why can't I say that? Plural, it's not a bunch of people, right? I'm not sure why I can't pronounce that right now, right? It's not a bunch of people, just individuals who happen to be parallel playing, right? That's the, that's the illustration I use. At some point in a toddler's development, they look at other toddlers, they see them, but they play their own thing. And they look over sometimes and they just sit next to each other doing their own thing. And it's only later that their love and also their sinfulness comes out and they start stealing each other's toys or sharing, etc. right? It becomes more of a corporate sharing dynamic. Well, we are saved not to be individuals who happen to show up occasionally to the same location every Sunday, but we are individuals that are to be tied to the head who is Christ and to his body, every person being placed in the body by God's sovereign intention, and that's the point. So if you think about the theology... The first three chapters of Ephesians, it is God's redemptive glory, right? It is our sinfulness and his amazing grace. And then it is, he has placed us in one new man, in one new body that is the church. So there's our doctrinal foundation. And from there, we then launch off into so many things, right? What the new life looks like, what walking in love looks like. What, what, what it looks like in terms of our homes, our, our marriages, in terms of our families, in terms of our work. And all of the, so all of these applications begin in chapter 4. So as we look at chapter 4, it appropriately begins with the body that is the church. Right? It begins with this is what the body, that one new man, that one new body, no more Jews, no more Gentiles, no more better member, no more lesser member, just all of us in one body. This is what this should look like. This is what walking worthy, which is the very first verse of chapter four, walking worthy in a manner, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. This is what it will look like. And, and that's why there's such an emphasis in Ephesians on what it means to develop, to grow, to nurture, right? The church. There's a lot of different views on how to grow a church. Everything from, you know, what kind of music you play, what the community is looking for, how comfortable the seats are, etc. And all of that, just nonsense. It's nonsense. 
The scriptures don't talk about trying to attract the world. The scriptures talk about understanding who Christ is, who God is, what they have accomplished, what the Holy Spirit has accomplished in transforming you. And as a result of that, he has placed you, God has placed you in a body of believers that is closer than family. That is what the scriptures attest to. Right? The family is never called one body. It is understood that the family is an important dynamic, but unbelievers understand that dynamic as well. The one redeemed group that is joined together in sovereign purposes according to God's redemptive program is the church. Is it perfect? No. If you know this church, you know this church isn't perfect. But it is our identity, and we are tied together. And that's become, as, I, as I've been preaching through that, one application is to become a member. And again, you don't need to be a member of this church. Maybe you don't like this church. Why are you here, right? But if you don't like that's okay. Find a church to be a member of, to be associated, because that seems to be, according to the book of Ephesians, part of the purpose of you being rescued from your sins, to be joined together with other believers for the cause of the glory of God in the world, for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be spread for the redemptive right, and healing ministry of the scriptures to be applied to one another. That, that's where we kind of pick up. So let me read to us the entirety of verses 7 through 16, and then I'll review quickly uh, points 1 and 2, and then we'll look at point 3, which has been expanded for your, for your pleasure purposes. Yeah. Chapter 4, starting in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of you according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we look to your scriptures uh, today, um, we're thankful that we are gathered to sing to sing songs that have meaning and clarify to us again the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that we lift up prayers corporately, that we could join in one voice and one amen to the things that we request of you, that you would reveal yourself, that you would demonstrate your glory, that everything that is excellent and wondrous about you um, about uh, the gift of the gospel of salvation, of all of the things that, Lord, that we take so for granted on a regular basis that we would be reminded again of how precious and delightful and good our life in Christ is. 
Lord, we thank you that we have um, opportunities to learn, to go to Sunday school, to fellowship, to build each other up, to welcome people that are visiting or, or encourage people that are struggling, that we have opportunity to live out, Lord, the cause of Christ in our day-to-day life, especially on this day, on the Lord's day. And as we thank you for those things, Lord, remind us of what a truly growing church looks like. Um, Not necessarily numerically, not necessarily in terms of its influence in the world, but in its passion for the things of Christ and the love of God. Lord, teach us to speak truth regularly, constantly, but always constrained for the purposes of love so that we might walk in a way that is truly worthy of the calling, that same calling that is touched by your infinite love for the loveless, for the individuals that should not be lovable, for for people that do not deserve your kindness. You have been so kind to us. Lord, so help us, Lord, to, to emulate that, to shine that, to reflect that to a dying and lost world. We thank you for all your grace to us and ask that you would bless this time around your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we did a couple of things. Um, last week we began talking about how to grow the church. Um, and in particular, in, in particularly, we, we, we began by speaking of the idea of Christ and his gifting of us. So we are gifted, but we say we're gifted by a conquering grace, meaning that it is Christ, the victor, the ascended one. Remember, it talked about the ascension, and we mentioned how, like, how can he ascend unless he descended? And I think Paul is intentionally using the vocabulary of an Old Testament text to kind of say the one that ascends usually gives out gifts. It's the opposite. Right? I'm sorry. Flip that around. It is the opposite. The one, that, uh, the one that ascends, the one that is victorious, is usually one that receives gifts from men. And that's what the psalmist said. But Paul is using that language to say, well, this one ascends, and then he gives out gifts. Because all these other guys, they got nothing to give him. And so he gifts us to us in his victory. In his gospel victory, he gives each according to his measure. Remember, that was verse 7, talking about how every Christian, every Christian has some measure, some mixture of gifting. He or she has some purpose, right, in the body of Christ. Every single one. And you might say, well, I'm kind of shy. I don't do this good. I don't do that good. I don't know a lot of things I do well. Well, that may be true, because maybe those aren't areas that you're strong. But you have some gifting, Whatever it is, some mixture of something that you bring, whether it's your unique perspective, right? Or, or, or something, because that is a promise of Scripture. He has given to, a, to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Well, we also said, point B under one, there was all according to Christ's victory. That's the whole part we just mentioned about how he has ascended. It is in his accomplishment of the cross, his death and his resurrection. It is upon that, upon the gospel victory, that he gives out these gifts. And so whatever gifting he's given to the church, he's done it in his ascension, in his victory. Is he victorious? Is he reigning? And if he is, then we should take the value of the scriptures, the truthfulness of the scriptures, to say that you have a purpose. If he is king and he is one over sin and death, then you have a purpose. And he's given you the capacity to help fulfill that purpose 
as one body. Well, the second major point was that he's gifted us in particular to build up the body of Christ, right? And we said that we have the blessings of the ministries of the word. Verse 11 talks about he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And the singular thing that they have in common is that they proclaim God's word. It's a ministry of scripture. It's a ministry of God's word. It's a priority of that, right? Because there's other lists of gifts that, that are given to us in the scriptures, and they have all kinds of different stuff. But what is listed here are only those individuals that, who have a particular gifting for the ministry of scripture. What does God say, and how should we take this, and what should it do for us? That's the blessing of those individuals. That's the gift to the church. Secondly, point B, is for the equipping of the saints for ministry. So that this is... This is this is so significant, right? To say that the, the ministry of the word is not meant to just give you instruction to where you keep filling up, filling up, filling up, but that it is meant to train you. So the ministry of the word is meant to be almost a coaching, almost an encouragement of prodding along so that you yourself, that as the body, that all the saints are equipped for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. This isn't a spectator sport. And if you've placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation, then the next thing that you should think about is, okay, now what do I do to serve him? Right? It, this isn't for you to just kind of sit, I come to church every Sunday, that's all I got to do. Well, listen, anybody can do that. Unbelievers can do that. The, the, the wonder of the transformed soul and our dependence upon Christ and seeking his glory the wonder of all of the message of the gospel in our lives being fulfilled and fleshed out is that we will participate in the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Because that is our purpose. That's part of why God has built us right, into one singular body. And third, for the attaining of the unity right, unto maturity. Verse 13 says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature manhood, right? Again, singular, to, to a mature aner, a, a mature individual, right, body, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We are the most full testimony of what it means to look at the glory and the wonder of Jesus Christ. We are the fullness of Christ on earth. Right? Not just our message. Our message matters, and we'll talk about how much that message matters in a sec. But our message matters, but it is us. Our transformation, our growth, our testimony together, not just individually, but together. That is the testimony of the glory of Jesus Christ and the wonder of the gospel of salvation that is granted to us. All of that is representing the body of Christ in the singular body of Christ. So we look at our last point today. And that's that we have been gifted, right, for all of these things so that we might grow up unto Christ. That we might grow up unto Christ. Verse 14 kicks us off, and it says there, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That we are no longer children, Right, immediately draws attention to a couple of things. One, the no longer. Um, it implies that at some point we were, or maybe implicates even the Ephesian Christians. Maybe some of them are still walking in their immaturity like children. 
Right? Like we are no longer children, so that we may no longer be children. Let me say that correctly. In other words, this is the purpose statement. Why, why are we gifted? Right? Um, why are we gifted according to Christ's measure? Why are we gifted with the blessing of the ministry of the word? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Why are we gifted in all these things? So that we may stop being children. The word for children that is used here is a, is a word that means uh, really small children, infants. And it could be used in the scriptures in different parts, especially um, by our Lord. Uh, in the Gospels, Jesus uses the same term for you know, childlike innocence. He says, you know, don't forbid the children from coming. He's talking about these little ones, right? Really little ones. Paul is using this this term negatively to say that spiritually speaking, you can't be immature forever. So that we would stop. We would no longer be children. That's the point of the group, right? Mentality of ministry of scripture and to ministering one of the one another's to each other so that we would stop being children. So we would grow up. It, it speaks of why it is so dangerous to be spiritually immature, right? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. The tossed to and fro by the waves is just, it, it is a picture of a ship that is tossed in the middle of a, of a storm in the sea. I don't know if you guys have had the privilege of going out like on, um, um, on a ship when the waves are kind of, you know, pitching. And the Pacific Ocean, which is the only ocean I've gone out on a boat in, right, um, is called the Pacific Ocean because it's relatively calm. I don't know what all the other oceans are like, but this is supposed to be the calm one, right? And so if you've ever gone on like a deep sea fishing boat, right, late at night, and at some point, you're, you're way out there. You're not like near the shore. In the shore, there's always waves breaking, right? But out there, the boat just pitches, like, 10 feet up, 10 feet down, like it just goes up to the point where as you're looking over the deck and you're looking out, there is a wall of water. And it's just because it just kind of does this, that you're not, the wall of water is not coming at you, right? It's not crashing on you. That's where hurricane winds can make, you know, you being in a vessel very dangerous. But it's not dangerous, but it, it certainly isn't comfortable, right? It's just, the, it just pitches up and down. You're going up like 20 feet, coming down like 10 feet. Like it's just wild. So you can imagine that if in a storm, in a calm situation, the waves pitch that much, in a storm, how frightful it must be in that time, in this part of the world, where a storm kicks up and you're on a boat without a sail, just kind of doing this, right? How terrifying that could be. And so the whole point is an illustration of stability, right? of security, that maturity brings to us a safety. So when it says that that you would no longer be children tossed to and fro, right, by the waves, and they carried about by every wind of doctrine. See, that second part tells us what we're talking about. The illustration is a ship that is tossed about by storm waves, but that it could be carried about by every wind of doctrine. That the storm winds that, that the apostle is talking about, it is the teachings, the false teachings, the different teachings, right? That's what doctrine means. It means teachings. That there are different kind of teachings that could toss us away or carry us away to something that is not the safety 
of the truth of God's word. It challenges the stability and security of Christian faith. And it's done so, according to the second part of verse 14, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Human cunning, the word here, is, uh, is literally um, dice playing. And so you say, well, that's weird. Why does that become the word cunning? Well, it's because it's uh, used metaphorically, eventually, of not just throwing dice, but of fixing games, right? And, you know, like, I, I think that's one of the oldest, you know, gambling things that, that people would cheat on, right? You load the dice so that it tends to come up a certain number over and over again. So see, that, that became this term. So it is translated cunning, meaning that it's trickeration, right? It's how you're tricking somebody, it's that, you know, like, you know, on New York on the sidewalk. I don't know if guys do that anymore. But they do the thing where they, you know, toss stuff and you got to guess which thing it's under, right? Like, you're not, you're not, and it's like, guys are always wrong. And it, it's, it's amazing, right? But it is trickeration. It is human cunning. That's that term there. And the second part, right? Not just by human cunning, but by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Craftiness. Right? That word had come to refer to an any means necessary approach to selling stuff that is fake. See, so by any means necessary, by any deceitful way, right, I'm selling you these schemes. The point is that this is very human, not divine, right? In contrast to that which is divine and stable, this is the instability, this is the storm waves, right? This is the wind of false teaching that is all based on human intelligence, cunning, craftiness, cleverness, and tricks. There is an instability, right, in being little children, tossed to and fro. Listen, you watch our little babies as they grow up. That's one of the the most amazing, miraculous things is that all of you can walk on two legs. That is amazing, right? Why is that amazing? Because if you've seen a little baby, and I've seen four of them grow up in my own home, right? These little guys, like they, they at first, they just kind of, you know, belly, I don't know, what a belly pull? It's kind of like a crawl, but their belly is literally dragging on the ground. And then they'll crawl on four, and then after a while, they'll stand for a second, and then they'll plop back down. They would practice that for a little bit. And all of a sudden, for whatever reason, they decide to take a couple steps. And it looks so unstable that you're kind of nervous, right? And occasionally, they'll kind of fall down, but they fall down kind of well. And then in a short amount of time, they are running all over your house. It, It is not a small miracle, but it's amazing that such coordination can be given to every human being, right? That's how we are meant. The fact that a toddler, right, especially as they're starting to walk, is unstable, is the entire illustration. They are vulnerable. Right? There's human cunning and craftiness, deceitful schemes that will be thrown at them. So spiritually speaking, there is the potential, right, of, 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 being, of being unstable, of being vulnerable, and being taken advantage of. And that's to come Colossians 1.28. Paul says simply, him, meaning Christ, him we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The, the goal of the apostle and the goal of every Christian ministry is to see maturity happen amongst believers. Is to see the gospel go forward and that those that receive the gospel of grace, that they would mature. So that they would mature to a point of stability and of strength. 
right? So they might be strong. They might grow to a mature manhood. You know, that's why our church places such an emphasis on the ministry of Scripture. There's no other means by which spiritual maturity in Christ can be accomplished. Listen, you can sing well. You can fellowship well. You can serve tables. You can help organize activities. You can be socially friendly. You can do all those things well. We can do all those things well as a church. But without the ministry of the word, we cannot fully mature to the child of God. To the child of God that we want to be with spiritual stability and steadfastness. And there's no shortcuts. I'm not saying don't, don't sing well. Sing well, right? Fellowship well. Serve tables or do all those things. But without the ministry of Scripture as the basis of your spiritual growth and development, you will stop. It just simply comes down to this. The message of the gospel, I know we preach it because we want people to be saved, and that's good, right? That's excellent. That's, that's loving, and that's appropriate, and I think that's, that's Christ-centric. But the message of the gospel is more about who God is and what he has done, than about us. We naturally put an emphasis on us because, you know, everything is about us. You know, uh, you're a sinner. I am? What would I do? How do I rescue myself? What, what can be accomplished, right? You're, you're gifted in this. I am? Well, then where can I serve? How can I demonstrate how good I am? How can I become better? Things are naturally so self-focused. That's what we are as human beings, right? You look at the group picture, Whose face are you trying to find first? Listen, I don't think it's necessarily because you are so arrogant or so vain that you got to see yourself, but you're concerned. Did, did I blink? Right? Oh, man, why'd they catch me when my mouth was all open like that? Right? Like, like you are concerned about yourself. That is natural to us. And as that being natural to us, what we might forget is that the message of the gospel and all of theology is about God and what he has done. You cannot grow in that simply by the experience of hanging out with each other. You cannot grow in the message, the truthfulness of who God is and what his, what his plan is and why he is the way he is simply by just talking with each other and saying, hey, things are going to be better. The only way that you grow in the message of the truth of God, meaning understanding who God is, what he has done, and why he deserves all the glory, is by actually entering into a ministry of Scripture that informs you, that teaches you, that prepares you so that you are no longer children, right? That gives you protection and growth. And the best way for us to protect and grow one another is by the proclamation of the scriptures, right? By having a ministry of the word, by helping apply the scripture to each other's lives. That's going to be by 2 Timothy 4. Paul says to Timothy, his protege, preach the word, Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. And he says, because the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Well, what will happen if they don't endure teaching? He says, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They want to hear about the things they want to hear about. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Our only two options are that. Right? Dig deeper into what is the truth of Scripture and grow 
in stability and maturity and fruitfulness or remain as children and be swallowed up, taken away, adrift into some mythology, into the next, you know, exciting thing that comes along in terms of human invention. We're gifted to grow up unto Christ. And the negative statement is that we are no longer to be children in verse 14. The positive statement then is given to us in verse 15. Rather, so here's the contrast to the negative. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Speaking truth in love. Now listen, this is a complete contrast to what has just been stated about these false teachers. Human cunning, craftiness, deceitful, right? In contrast to how they speak their truth, we are to speak a truth that is, that is founded or foundational to our purposes in love. Thus, speaking truth in love has a twofold contrast. This, I'm getting this from Peter T. O'Brien, who, who anything he writes is worth gold. But Peter T. O'Brien says in his commentary, thus speaking the truth in love lays out a twofold contrast with the false teachers. The latter were presenting false doctrine as a de- in a deceptive manner, but over against this, God's people are to grow through proclaiming the truth in love. In other words, it gives us a contrast of, of, of the manner. How do you do that? Well, you do that in love. And, and the specifics. What do you speak? Well, you're speaking truth, not deception. So you're approaching the whole thing with sincerity, with love motive, right? With honesty, with integrity. And you're doing the exact opposite, right? In terms of how to do it, as well as what it is that you're speaking of. Interesting thing here, right? You guys have all heard this phrase, speaking the truth in love. The word for truth that is translated speaking the truth um, is a participle. And that, that's why our you know, English translations say speaking the truth, translating one participle, one verbal noun. But it is a word for truth turned into a verb that you can translate truthing. Truthing. We, we are to speak truth. That, that's the point of it. But the idea is that, that truthing, that, that what we're trying to get at is not just speaking, right? Like legalese truth. You know, remember when you get caught doing something bad, you know, and then you, you, you tell the truth, but you only tell part of the truth. So that, you know, the, the, the part that, you know, that you knew that this was bad to do, like you leave that out or, you know, who, who actually, you know, touched this first you leave that out. Like you give a convenient truth, a statement that is not false, but is fairly truth. Well, this word, right, covers all of that and says that's still falsehood. In other words, you're supposed to be truthing. Whatever you speak, you're speaking on behalf of the purposes of being as act- not just factual, but seeking truthfulness. So that if you are caught, then you admit it. And you admit it wholesale. That, yeah, I did that, and I did that because I was tempted by it, because I wanted to do that. I wanted to see what this was, even though you said not to touch it, and then I broke it, right? There is something about truthing, this term, speaking truth, that, that, that speaks to the gospel-centric right, individual who, despite his reputation or her reputation, will speak honestly and humbly, and will confess wholeheartedly. But it's not just in confession. It's even in the application of scripture. To speak in ways that carry the idea of, of, of speaking for the purpose that truth 
is conveyed to its maximum. We're not, we're not speaking, you know, kind of true, half true. Speak, we're just truthing. And we're just talking about it, right? In Galatians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul, speaking to the Galatians, asked him this. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? It's the same word, by truthing. By speaking actual truth to you. And in that context, we're talking about the truth of the gospel. Of, of all the things that Paul has spoken of. Because again, when we hear the word truth, we might think of it more in a legal sense. In did I, did I state the facts correctly? Because I can omit some facts and make it kind of seem like we're going this way. Right? I, I, can, I can push blame on somebody else by saying, yeah, you know, it was, a, it was a decision by the group that we did this. And I can hide the fact that on my part, you know, I did nothing to help or participate in this because I, I knew it was going to go bad. You get, you get what I mean? Like you can, you can hide behind factual statements, but this word tells us that it is about truthing. And Paul says, are you becoming, am I becoming your enemy to the Galatian Christians by speaking the truth to you, by opening honestly what must be said, are you despising what is true and choosing instead a false doctrine, a false teaching, a false expression of the gospel? The context here, similarly, is not just about speaking you know, all kinds of you know, factual statements, but it's about seeking the truth in our lives. Remember, it was Jesus' gospel victory, his, his ascension, his victory, um, that is the basis on which he gives gifts for the building up of the church. And part of the gift that he has given to us is the ministry of the scriptures, the ministry of the word. And as we have that, we are to use that in a way that is truthing, emphasis on speaking, teaching, singing, thinking, communicating, all according to what God's word says. Not just the conveying of brute facts. In other words, speaking truth in love is not just saying, hey, listen, I got to tell you, man, your tie is ugly. I just thought, you know, someone should lovingly let you know. You know, because you wore it before, too. And I thought, oh, that's bad news. And here it is again. Look at it. That may be, at least in your mind, factual. At least in your mind, truthful. Is it gospel truth? Is it spiritual truth? Is it God's truth? Well, I think that's the difference between just brute facts and truth that is meant to build up. But there's more to it than simply that, right? It's about speaking truth in a particular manner. Truthing, it says, right? Speaking truth in love. In love. The phrase just, the word love is used so many times and it's a prominent theme in the book of Ephesians. But the phrase in love is used six times, right? So that's like an even more narrow group, right? It's used six times throughout Ephesians. And it speaks of the manner in which our Christian life is to be lived, right? In love. In chapter 4, this phrase in love appears first in verse 2. Bearing with one another in love. And I, I want to remind you that this is under the umbrella, under the foundational statement of verse 1. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And immediately, Paul says in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. In patience, 
humility, gentleness, bear with one another in love. That's verse 2. And then here, speak truth to one another in love. Love will constrain the, the truth that we speak. It will direct, it will be the manner in which that truth is spoken. That's verse 15. And then the very next verse will speak to the idea of building up the body in love. Man, this is the theme in chapter 4. That whatever we do in terms of our participation in the body of Christ, we do it in a manner with motivation that springs from love. If our truthing doesn't seem very loving, we're probably doing it wrong. Listen, I'm not saying that even if you speak truth in love, that it's going to be received well. But at the very least, it is our obligation to speak it in a way that betrays the love of God in Christ. You have to speak truth. You you can't say, oh, this is not sin when it's sin. But even how you say it, the spirit in which you say it, how you approach it, Right? And how you care for the sinner demonstrates, are you speaking truth in love or are you just speaking truth? There's, of course, the opposite or the, the, the other side of that imbalance, right? Where it could be truth without love and it could be love without truth. I'm always helped by, and I encourage you to pick up Randy Alcorn's small book, right? Um, uh, the Grace and Truth Paradox. So well done. His whole point in his opening statement, I think, is something like, you know, churches that are known for truth often are called very unloving. And churches that are known for being very loving often are really wishy-washy in terms of the truth. And strangely enough, he says in John chapter 1, when it speaks about Jesus, the incarnation, the Son of God, the incarnation of his word, it says he was full of truth and grace. Like, like he is both of those. And that's why it's a paradox, not a contradiction. And as Christians, we should be that. Speaking truth and love is one of those things. We need to speak truth. We need to speak against sin. We need to encourage people to repent. We need to do that. But it needs to be motivated and mannered in a way that is obviously love. And it may not be received as love. We can't always help how it's received. But at least on our part, we are doing our best to convey every truth that we speak, everything that we know and that we care about, that the world should care about, about who God is and what he has done for us, we do that in the manner and for the sake of the love of God. All right? That, that, that's what truthing in love means. Verse 15 said, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Speaking truth and love is the means by which we grow into our head. Remember last week we ended with that illustration of our little tiny babies and how their head is disproportional to the rest of their body and they can't put their hands together over their head. That is hilarious to me. I love that. I love seeing that, right? Because their disproportionality makes them so adorable, so cute. But it would be horrendous if, you know, a 50, by the way, I'm 54, Kathy corrected me right after. I don't know why she didn't correct me right there. She could have, you know, I, can't, I told you guys at 53, I'm not. All right? So that was a lack of truthing. <laughs> Unintentional, nevertheless. Right? But a 54-year-old man, if my head was so big that I couldn't put my hands over, right, that would look weird. Right? Disproportional. 
But instead of thinking the head is too big, the point is this, that the body is to grow up into the head. That's how we understand the kids. Like you don't see a little baby and go, oh man, his head is so big compared to his body. I wish his head would shrink. That's not the way you think about it, right? You think the other way around. I, I know that his body will grow into, right, his head. This is how Paul illustrates this. Speaking truth in love is the means by which the application of God's truth in a loving way is the means by which we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. This is how we grow into our head. This is how his body, the church, grows into his head. We must always emphasize truth. And we always emphasize truth and love. And when we do those two, two things well, and we will always lose our balance. Why? Because we're sinners, we still struggle with stuff, and we're not that wise. But if we are constantly trying to self-correct, so we're speaking truthfully, always truthfully, always God's truth, and we're doing that lovingly, doing the best we can to be as loving and as, as, as gracious as we possibly can. We have the capacity to grow up in every way so that this body fills out the glory of our head, who is Jesus Christ. That's what it looks like to grow up into Christ. For all the church to be built up together in truth and in love. I think the point is that you don't judge a church by the immaturity of some of its members. But you do judge a church by the trajectory of most of its members, if not all of its members. Are they growing up in every way into Christ the head? Because they speak truth and they speak truth in love. See how these, kind of, these things kind of fit together? This, this is how the, the church grows. Not by figuring out what people are looking for. Not by figuring out how to shorten stuff or lengthen stuff or how to involve some more creative things. How, how, to, how to be more flashy or be more, you know, you know what I mean? Like programs are good and the way that we do things, we do want to do them excellently. Our worship team does a great job, right? Our AV team does a great job, right? For the most part, we get most things right. There have been some really bad hiccups in the past. I don't know why I think of this right now. But um, um, there was like, you know, like you accidentally change a letter in a, you know, in a slide, in a hymn. This is like years ago when we were in Santa Monica. And it would, you know, it would be things like, you know, because he sins, I could face tomorrow and stuff. And he's just like, dude, that's, that's not truth, man. That's, that's very bad, right? And it's, it's a mistake. It's an honest mistake, you know. It should be condemned, right? It should immediately be fired. But nobody, everyone's doing this for free, so what can you do, right? Like, the point is that you don't judge a church by its Im- the immaturity of some, but you judge the trajectory of the whole. We are singular, right, to grow up in every way into him who is the head. There's only one body. We are all of us together, and we are to grow by truth in love. Final point. <clears throat> There's one body for one head. Verse 16. Verse 15 just left off with into Christ. And then we pick up this preposition phrase. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. <clears throat> when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Verse 16 gives us two things about the person of Christ. One, he is the source of the body as soul joined together. Now notice how it says that Christ from whom the whole body, right? One singular whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. 
In other words, there are joints, there are pieces, there are things that kind of keep us together. But that the members and every joint, every tendon, whatever that word might mean, right? Every member is placed and held together by Christ. He is the source of the singularity that is the body of Christ. And so that the church, right, should feel like, should look like, should act like, like he is the head. Because this head then sources out all the component parts. It tells us that if Christ is worthy, right, is he worthy? If he's worthy, then we are to walk out unity, interdependence, loving truthfulness with one another because he's the one that put us all together. He's the source behind it all. To the degree that you think that God is worthy in Christ, in what he's accomplished in your life, in the life of those that are around you, that is the measure to which you need to invest yourself into growing in the things of the Lord and to ministering to other people. I mean, it's just the measure of his worthiness, right? He is the head, and he's the one that has placed all the component parts together, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, right? Like Christ is the source of it all. And so if the church is to represent Christ, then you just have to figure out, is he worth that representation? Because that's what verse one was talking about. Walking in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called. You've been called unto salvation into this body of believers. Is the one that has called you, how worthy is he? then that's your goal. That's your aspiration. In fact, that's their aspiration of all the household codes. By the time we get to chapter five, right, in terms of, you know, living in submission, right, in terms of, you know, loving sacrificially, in terms of, you know, um, um, children obeying and, uh, and working with our masters in the workplace, in all of those things, those things are not unique. In fact, they have been criticized over the course of human, human you know, history because other philosophers, unbelieving philosophers, have said, what's the big deal about that? Right? The Romans commonly taught that wives should submit, that men should be fairly loving. Maybe they didn't teach that that much, right? Um, the children should obey and, and be submissive to their parents, that everyone should obey their masters and follow the laws, etc. The Romans taught all those same ethics. What's so unique about that? What's unique about it in all of them, it is unto the Lord. Right? You love as Christ loved the church. It's not a small kind of love. It's not a love when it's coming. It's the kind of love that is so demanding of you, your whole life is lost in it. You submit unto the Lord as if it is the Lord. You, you, you obey as unto the Lord. You try to honor your mother and father unto the Lord. Like everything is unto the Lord. So there's a distinctly Christ-centered, Christ-honoring right, element of everything that we must do. So this whole body, which is the body that Christ has put together, joined and held together by every joint which is equipped by him, needs to honor him and make him worthy. I said that he is a source. That's the first part of verse 16. He's also the goal. The second part of verse 16. <clears throat> when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When each part is working properly. Remember, we go back to the beginning of this whole section on gifting. 
The one that has ascended has given gifts. And as he's given gifts, every Christian is, has some measure of giftedness, some ability, some thoughtfulness, whatever it is. And every Christian, when they are working properly, when they are using their gifts appropriately, each one of us differing in the measure of Christ's gift, right? When we are doing things right, then the body, again, singular, the singular body will grow. It makes the body grow. So, so what, the ministry of the word is to train its members to know their role, to apply scripture, to, to honor Christ, to love one another in truthfulness, and to truth one another in love. And as they do that, what happens is everybody is working properly together, and that's what makes the body grow. Singular body, right? This is what we mean by all for one, right? One body for one head. This is the goal. So that, that's that last part, so that it builds itself up in love. Peter T. O'Brien, again, he says, love thus becomes the criterion for an assessment of the church's true growth. Even the fullest denomination of gifts has no spiritual value if love is lacking. And he says, see further, all right, 1 Corinthians 13. And you guys recall 1 Corinthians 13, that great chapter on love, and it says, man, if, if I have not love, I'm nothing. Clanging symbol, right? Oh, just, just noise. Love then fills in the gospel-centric ministry of the body, the singular body of Jesus Christ. So you think about Ephesians 4, right? It began with uh, the... Ephesians 4 begins then, the last half of the book of Ephesians, the the sections on the application or the how we are to live in light of of the what, in terms of what Christ has done for us, right? So what does it look like to live out that Christian life? Well, as we've looked at so far in chapter 4, right, verses 1 through through 6 reminds us, reminds the readers that we are to, to live in a manner that's worthy of our calling, that's worthy in in the serving of one another in one body. Well, verses 7 through 16 speaks of how to develop that relationship unto one another in the person of Christ, how we are his body and we grow his church. We are gifted, as the scripture said in verse 7, right? There's a ministry of the scriptures that's for the building up of the members for the work of service, verse 11 and 12, that our differences... Right. And uh, the fact that none of us are super Christian members. Right. That we don't no one has all the gifts. And as a result of that, we are interdependent on one another. It binds us together in our need for each other, in our ministry to one another. It binds us together in familial love. And we become this new humanity. Listen, you, you could still be Jewish or you could still be Gentile. Right. You could still be from Southern California. Or you grew up in the East Coast. Or you grew up in that weird area called Canada. I don't know. What, right? Wherever you came from, you could be your background, your culture could be whatever it is. And yet you are also a part of this new humanity that is the body of Christ. And so before we speak on how to conduct ourselves in our marriages, in our families, in our workplace, in our society... Living worthy of the calling of Jesus Christ is figuring out how to utilize our unique giftedness in love. How to speak truth and convey the deep things of God, all right, and the conviction of his holiness in love. 
how to bear with, care for, build up this body of Christ in love. We are gifted for a purpose, not for self-enjoyment or self-fulfillment, but that we might build up the body of Christ. We might build up his body because he is worthy. And we do that with truth and love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as um, we close our time around the scriptures, Lord, we give you praise that you have so orchestrated the body of Christ that it would minister, Lord, to every one from the other. That you haven't made, Lord, a, a temple of priests right, that are an elite class who serve the lesser class, but that instead, regardless of what our gifts are, whether they are speaking gifts, whether they are serving gifts, whether they are ministering gifts or thoughtful gifts or whatever they might be, Lord, whatever unique perspective you've given to each one of us, that they might be used equally and corporately for the building up of one another. Lord, there is no institution, there's no corporate, Lord, gathering, there's no people groups or clubs or societies that is quite like the church. Help us to live in a way that honors and appreciates and elevates our understanding of the body of Christ that is the church. Help us honor her for whom you died and for whom you continue to minister and desire to see built up, to display your glory, your glory and your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.